Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Megan Shaner, professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. We'll be discussing her article, The Corporate Chameleon, which was recently published in the University of Richmond Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Megan, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. Megan, your article is about a challenge that we sometimes face in corporate law, which is identifying who the corporation's officers are. Before we get into the meat and bones of your article, could you maybe discuss a little bit what role do officers play in a firm's internal governance? Why is their role or maybe their identity a little bit more ambiguous than some of the other governance actors? Sure. The traditional corporate form is based on three distinct actors, the directors, stockholders, and officers. Focusing in on the officers, well, as a formal legal matter, the board of directors is is traditionally described as the focal point of corporate power. Its actual role in corporate decision-making is much more modest. It's really the officers of the corporation that largely shoulder the majority of the decision-making duties, and they're the ones that are managing the day-to-day affairs of the corporation. So consistently noted in both the literature and cases In the modern public corporation, directors select senior officers and then essentially step aside, um, really intervening only in times of crisis or in very large issues such as a merger or major refinancing. And so officers, in particular senior executive officers, have vast amounts of power and discretion in running public corporations. When you look at uh, the state statutes and the case law, however, um, officers get very little attention. So state corporate codes make clear the identities of directors and the stockholders, even providing for quick access to the courts to determine any disputes regarding who occupies those particular roles. Directors, for instance, are tied to a very specific election or appointment process that's set forth in statute. Stockholder status is tied to ownership of stock, and there's a lot of record-keeping surrounding who is a stockholder. But guidance on the role or identification of officers, on the other hand, is almost absent in the statutes. So historically, when you look at corporate codes, those statutes identified a handful of officers that every corporation should and in some cases must have. These included roles like the president, secretary, treasurer. But over the years, the adoption of statutory reforms largely stripped out all references to any particular office or title. So while corporate statutes contemplate a distinct officer category, they now refrain from articulating that role with any type of specificity. So, for example, if you look at Section 142 of the Delaware General Corporation Law, it states that every corporation organized under the chapter shall have such officers with such titles and duties as shall be stated in the bylaws or resolution of the board. But that's as far as it goes. It doesn't provide any sophistication beyond that. So really, corporate statutes today leave it up to the corporations to specify the officer role. But when you look at the corporations themselves, they've largely refrained from clarifying the term officer at all. So there was a recent article in 2019 that found that the bylaws of the 50 largest U.S. public corporations provide very little information about officers or their duties beyond basic boilerplate provisions, largely mimicking that statutory language told you about. And and in connection with my own research for this article, I looked at the charter and bylaws of the Fortune 100 companies 
and there was very little information in them or specificity about who was or was not an officer. There wasn't really any information to help you identify who would be an officer as corporate law envisions that role. And then what further complicates the task of identifying which individuals are officers is that over the years, corporations have kind of muddied the definitional waters through fashioning officer titles in lots of different ways. They give titles to countless people, many of whom lack traditional officer responsibilities and authority. So, for example, in the paper I point out, Stonyfield Farm CEO's official title was CEO. It was reported Steve Jobs' officer title, Apple, was the ICEO. Twitter CFO was the corporation's president of revenue. So even a prominent treatise on corporate law has pointed out that under the statute, a corporation doesn't have to have a president or vice president. It even tees up that a corporation could have a czar or a potentate, a record keeper. Really, you could be as creative as you want in naming these individuals. So what we see is officers aren't fungible across corporations in the same way that directors are, which can cause a lot of confusion. Plus, when you can give officer titles to really anyone, whether or not they actually take on officer responsibility, it means that corporate law has kind of developed in such a way that identifying the officers of a corporation for corporate law, for legal purposes, is more challenging really than it has ever been before. So this has been a challenge for corporate law. What are the approaches for determining who is and is not an officer? Is there an objective test where there is a list of titles, even if we might have some kind of titles uh, that you mentioned where folks with these titles are presumptively officers, or is it more subjective or function-based? How do courts address that? It really varies, which is what causes part of the problem. So courts have employed lots of different approaches in interpreting statutes or organizational documents' use of officer and trying to determine officer status for a particular individual. The differing approaches have been described more broadly as the legal officers versus traditional officers debate. So in the cases we see courts, even in applying this exact same statutory language, disagree whether officer status should be based, determined on, you know, one, on one hand, objective criteria, as you mentioned, like title, director election, director appointment of the individual, or two, on the other hand, um, subjective functional criteria, such as their responsibilities, duties, access to information or financial resources. And so the court's decisions can be kind of summarized as following in, in one of three buckets, one of three basic approaches. The first test really heavily relies on the objective approach. It focuses solely on title of the individual at issue. So the mere status of an individual will trigger the application of a particular statute or regulation. Advocates of the objective legal approach to defining officer point out that it provides clear guidance to market actors as to whether or not they would be classified legally as an officer. On the other hand of the spectrum, though, some courts apply almost purely subjective approach. They look beyond the individual's title to his or her job duties. They look at access to information, authority to influence corporate affairs and decision-making. These courts reason that a more functional analysis for determining officer status will further the purpose and goals of the statute that they're analyzing. Moreover, courts that employ the objective, more pragmatic approach push back on the objective title-focused approach as akin to a strict liability approach and point out that the objective approach places a lot of responsibility for meticulous observance of the provision upon the shoulders of an insider and that he or she, the individual, must bear the risk of any inadvertent miscalculation 
or mistitling. So being given a title by a corporation could automatically trigger all of this liability. And it, it really, the burden would fall on the individual to either reject the title or be aware of that liability that will attach with a title. Then we get a few cases actually kind of fall in the middle. So drawing from both the objective and the subjective approaches, a third option that has been used from time to time um, and sometimes is called the title with exception analysis provides that an individual's title would create a presumption of officer status, which could then be rebutted upon a showing that the functionality of the individuals and they were not in a position to influence corporate decision-making or have access to confidential information, that they were really a kind of, it was a hollow title. And then they could avoid officer status by rebutting that presumption. The other thing you see in the cases too it's kind of on top of these different approaches. You also see courts interpreting officer status shift depending on a particular section of a statute at issue and the policy or purpose behind that statute. Even if the statute doesn't say the definition of officer, the use of officer isn't intended to shift from provision to provision, we see courts giving officer a definitional fluidity across statutory provisions based on the purpose. And so even within a statutory scheme, we see courts shift their approach based on other objectives or criteria, even if the statute doesn't indicate that was intended. And even we see following some, especially we see this in the securities context, where there have been some statutory amendments to help resolve the differing approaches that courts have been applying, the degree to which function versus title should be considered by the courts is still not entirely clear. So we still get differing approaches really depending on the jurisdiction you're in. So it sounds like we get different approaches depending on the jurisdiction we're in. And are there distinctions that come up between different substantive areas of law? Is this primarily a challenge facing corporate law, or do we see it in other domains as well? Well, in the paper, I really focus in on corporate law. I think it's it's a huge problem for corporate law, um, but it pervades other areas of the law. And so defining officer is not technically within the province of corporate law, but corporate law plays a really important role in how other areas of state or federal law determine officer status. So in the paper, I point out you know, federal securities law, bankruptcy law, and jurisdictional statutes all specifically take into account the corporate officer position in their rules and regulations. And officer status, it also gets described as insider status, comes with additional liabilities for certain types of payment or compensation, additional disclosure requirements may attach to these individuals, jurisdiction may attach to these individuals because of officer status. Each of these different areas of the law define officer in slightly different terms. Some statutes take a more formulaic approach, focusing really in on the titles of the individuals within the corporate enterprise for purposes of how they define officer. Some of the statutes look to compensation as an indicator of officer status, that the more highly compensated individuals would be those types of officers that the statute is intended to address. Other statutory provisions include a more substantive catch-all provision that's really intended to pick up individuals who are functional equivalents of titled officers, so really keying in on the kind of the subjective approach and identifying officers. And then we see other references to the officer position without providing a specific definition at all. Some areas in bankruptcy law reference officers, corporate officers, as insiders, but don't 
tie a really specific definition of officer in its statute. And then when you look at how courts are interpreting and applying the different definitions, there's considerable disagreement over the proper identification of persons occupying this role within each of these areas and across the areas as they kind of look to each other for help in determining who should or shouldn't be an officer. But the reason at the start of this question that I said, you know, who an officer is to degree is within the province of corporate law, or that's where we should start in addressing this question, is because courts in other areas, when they're looking at federal security statutes and rules and regulations or bankruptcy law or jurisdictional statutes, courts will frequently look to the state corporate code and case law for guidance. And so in the bankruptcy context, for example, courts have specifically noted the absence of guidance under the relevant state corporate code on the issue of who is an officer. And they point out it's problematic for its analysis. And so how state corporate law defines officer serves as sort of a North Star for courts in analyzing officer status in other areas of law, even where those other areas have a specific statute that attempts to define officer. Frequently, the courts are looking to state corporate law to help provide guidance. And so the lack of guidance at the state corporate law level has resulted in definitional fluidity within disciplines and across disciplines in trying to identify who really are the officers of a corporation. The result is that the same individual can move in and out of officer status in a chameleon-like fashion depending on the legal context and jurisdiction in which he or she is operating. They could have the same job description and for one issue be a corporate officer and for um, another issue of the law not be one. And so there's not really uniformity in how we view these individuals under the law. In your article, you propose a definition or approach for bringing greater clarity to identifying who a corporation's officers are. How does that definition or approach work and how does it fill some of the gaps that you've talked about in, in this paper? Yeah, so one important consideration I note kind of at the outset in trying to figure out a good solution is that unlike uh, what we see in jurisdictional statutes or in the ALI, Principles of Corporate Governance, state corporate statutes do not employ different types of officers like these other resources do. They don't make distinctions within the category of officer, such as executive officer or senior executive officer. So in my paper, what I do is I attempt to work within positive law. So I'm crafting a definition for officer that needs to be flexible enough to encompass all of the different references to and uses of officer within corporate statutes as they're currently drafted. And so this consideration counsels in favor of using a more subjective as opposed to objective approach. And so then the next step in the paper is I propose focusing in on a prototype-centered approach to determine an individual's officer status. So a prototype-centered category may be defined through identification of one or more prototypes, uh, an example of what the category most obviously includes, or alternatively, it can be based on some number of features generally common to the prototype. And so the prototype-centered model of category is often used in creating and applying legal principles, um, and it's particularly well-suited to define the scope of a legal category when the law uses a term from ordinary language, such as officer. Prototype-centered categories are particularly useful. So for most words, terms, and concepts, we quickly recognize some clear examples. 
but we can also readily imagine cases that are murkier. And so the obvious instances will represent the category's core. The more questionable ones are at the category's penumbra, and so those common characteristics can be very useful. So when we think about officers, applying this to officers, members of the C-suite, like the CEO, CFO, and COO, represent the core of the officer category, while roles such as vice president, vice secretary, vice treasurer are more attenuated and raise more questions as to true legal officer status. So these penumbra officers are where the definition of officer is most needed, and that's where we will see them do the most work. The prototype center definition for officers that I lay out incorporates both the objective and subjective components of officer status. It draws on the characteristics of corporate officer status that cases and scholars have already identified as being really important in their conclusions and analysis. So these include things like the title given to an individual, um, also articulation of the office held in the corporation's governing documents, so to the extent the charter or bylaws articulate a particular office and describe the individual who will occupy that. Another characteristic to look at is whether the individual was appointed or elected by the board or an officer with a board-delegated appointment authority. Also, industry custom or standards can be a really important factor to look at. The individual's involvement in policymaking functions for the corporation, whether the individual exercises discretionary authority or power in managerial decision-making, for example, or it gets described many times as exercising the power of the corporation, kind of being the corporation. And then finally, whether the individual occupies a position of position of trust, which can include performing duties that would allow the individual access to financial information or other confidential information about the corporation's affairs, such that this individual could exert undue influence over corporate decision-making. And so this list of factors takes into account both the legal and traditional roles of officers in the corporation. In the paper, I encourage courts to look at the totality of the circumstances in determining officer status with no one factor being wholly dispositive. So in advocating for a holistic approach that considers all relevant officer characteristics, what I propose is consistent with the fact-specific case-by-case analysis that is characteristic of corporate law in, in deciding other issues historically. Megan, what key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this interview and from the article? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one thing is to really be aware that in state law, at the state corporate law level, there can continues to be a persistent lack of guidance surrounding the role, duties, and liabilities of officers in the corporation. This specific article points out that categorization as a corporate officer carries with it distinct legal duties, rights, and liabilities for both state and federal law purposes. Yet, individuals, boards, and their attorneys are left to speculate as to officer status. And when we think about the law, linguistic precision is vital to the development, practice, and application of the law. But to achieve this, there has to be a clear delineation of a term's legal meaning. This is necessary for individuals to understand their legal responsibilities and authority, and for lawyers and judges to be able to communicate efficiently and effectively about their legal status and legal responsibilities. So if left unresolved, definitions will be determined ex post. It will allow parties to opportunistically define officer to fit their particular argument. 
the result being judicial analysis and rulemaking as it pertains to corporate officers will become inconsistent and unpredictable for these individuals. And the more narrow problem discussed in this article about who is an officer really ties into the larger uncertainty surrounding officers. The ambiguity in defining officer has contributed to the marginalization of officer doctrine as a whole, in particular, the development of fiduciary duties. In the article I really posed towards the end, how can courts, parties, and scholars engage in a thoughtful, informed dialogue regarding the proper role and accountability for these really important individuals in corporate governance if there's not a clear understanding of who an officer is? You know, and moreover, how can legal counsel adequately advise these key management members of their legal responsibilities if the law makes it unpredictable as to whom these rights, responsibilities, and liabilities will apply? And then I think finally, in looking to the future for corporate officers, with the courts and boards of directors continuing to stay silent with respect to articulating the contours of officer status and officer duties and liabilities, We see these individuals and their counsel looking to private ordering solutions. For example, the ABA's task force on director and officer liability is looking for possible private ordering solutions like employment contract provisions to answer some of the outstanding questions surrounding officers. However, how can parties engage in efficient and fair contracting in this space if their default legal principles from which they're hoping to operate remain undefined? If we don't know who the officers are, how can we be um, properly contracting around what their duties and liabilities are? So it really has kind of a systemic impact, not only on current statutes, but also contracting going forward. Our guest today has been Megan Shaner, professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. We've discussed her article, The Corporate Chameleon, which was recently published in the University of Richmond Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Megan, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.